Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, Max. Hello, Evan. Good morning to you both. Max, who's on the show this week? This week on the show is Brittany Luce. Brittany Luce is a uh, podcast host. I'm going to quickly tick through Brittany's last almost decade in the podcasting uh, wilds, because I think it's it's a fascinating career she has had. So tick tick, Max, tick away, tick tick. <laughs> oh, I'll tick. Twenty fourteen, she uh, started a independent podcast with her friend Eric Eddings. It was called For Colored Nerds. Less than a year later, she was hired by Gimlet in its earliest days to host a podcast. So she became a professional podcaster very very quickly. She first hosted a show called Sampler. Fun fact: I was one of the first guests on the show. Also, fun fact, I was terrible. Uh, Then she hosted a new show at Gimlet with Eric called The Nod. Then that show became a video show on Quibi. Guys remember Quibi? Oh, yeah. Someday, you know know how we do the Polk special thing where we do seven days of Polk Award winners? Can we do like a seven days of defunct (laughs) Quibi (laughs) projects? Because we've had a few of them on here. Well, this is this was uh, we went deep both on the rise and the fall of Quibi. We got the whole Quibi experience. Uh, Quibi ends. She freelanced. She wrote some articles. She guest hosted podcasts. Did some editing, and then she and Eric relaunched for Colored Nerds with Stitcher. Did that for a while, and now she is the host of the NPR show. It's been a minute which you guys might remember from the podcast I did last year with Sam Sanders just after he stepped down for that show. So she replaced Sam on It's Been a Minute. That is the story of Brittany Luce's last nine years, and we talked about all of it. I look forward to this. I like your uh, your intertextual callback to a previous long-form podcast episode. Keep expanding the multiverse, Max. I pr- appreciate it. Thanks, man. Uh, we're brought to you, of course, in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Brittany Luce. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited to be talking to you. I'm glad to be talking to you, too. Uh, we've talked before. Yes. I came on an early podcast of yours. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. If I remember it correctly, I was incredibly awkward. Not a very good podcast <laughs> guest. You remember that correctly. Yeah. I was. I, um, I, the words that you use to describe the day do fit. They're your <laughs> words. Listen, I, uh, you have to at least know how awkward you are. You know what I mean? 
at the very least. You have to be you have to be self awkward aware. That's fair. But here we are. We're talking again. I'm going to try and make it less awkward this time if I can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are so many things that I want to talk to you about. You have hosted so many different shows over your career. You've played different roles. You write. You have edited shows. You were on Quibi for a minute. Uh, <laughs> Yes. The, the career of Brittany Luce contains multitudes, and I want to talk about <laughs> all of it. But I was hoping we could start with what you're doing now. You are uh, the host of It's Been a Minute on NPR. I actually talked to Sam Sanders, yes. who you took over for. I talked to Sam about a year ago, just after he had stepped down. Right. And so it feels to me like there's a little bit of continuation there. Mm-hmm. but. Here is my first question about It's Been a Minute. Yes. What is like the through line of the show for you? Is there a thing with It's Been a Minute that you are trying to do episode to episode, week to week? Well, right now, I'll say like big picture wise, we're at a point where we're like, I think, really starting to get to like the deeper levels of of like what the show with me as the host is. And like getting to like the whatever's underneath the foundation and like rebuilding that for this specific production team. But the sort of like North Star that we're always looking for when we're making the show right now is some sort of vanguard point. I mean, sometimes you will have like certain things that you feel that you should cover on the show. Like we did have a conversation recently that was about like the, what what then was it the upcoming possibility of an upcoming WGA strike, which at the time of this conversation, um, Hollywood is still smack dab in the middle of a writer's strike. And that was something where it's like, we cover so much TV. We talk to so many people who create these shows that we enjoy, like it would be responsible to look at some of the labor struggles of some of these people that we talk to and this content that we enjoy so much. And you guys did an episode about Tina Turner just after she died. Yeah, we did an episode. So like, we're always looking for the vanguard points. So for instance, when we talked about Tina Turner recently, as soon as we decided that that was something that we wanted to cover on the show, and that was something that was done in a day, mm-hmm. which is just, we have the, like we have just the best team, the most amazing producers. And we were able to turn that around in a day to go on the radio and on podcast that weekend while also having all these other segments and preparing the following week's show. It was on a three-day weekend. Like, it was chef's kiss. Like, everybody was so on point. But once we realized we knew that we had to talk about Tina Turner for the following day, pretty much, I knew that I wanted to talk to Danielle Smith. Danielle Smith is also somebody that I had as a guest on Sampler <laughs> way, way <laughs> back in the day. Um, she was better than me. <laughs> Although she and her husband, I, I think it's like one of the, the few interviews they've done together. They were delightful. They were awesome. Uh, but she's just one of the best music writers of all time, one of the best journalists of all time, one of the best writers, period, of all time. And she wrote this amazing book called Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. And the way she wrote about the biggest names in pop music, I knew that she was exactly the person that I needed to talk to about Tina Turner. I mean, let me back up. Many other people felt the same way. (laughs) So she was very busy (laughs) at the time that we wanted to talk to her, but she was so gracious and made time for us. And one of the things that we kept circling as a team when we were thinking about like how to approach a conversation about Tina Turner that had a new idea in it was in thinking about Tina Turner as a woman who wrote her own happy ending, 
And then one of our producers, Barton Girdwood, was like, well, why don't we ask as a last question, like, what Tina's idea of heaven, like, what heaven does Danielle think Tina is living in right now? And she gave the most beautiful answer. I couldn't possibly repeat it. But but she, to summarize, she said that she wished that Tina Turner, who was, uh, as a girl, picked cotton, you know, coming from a family of sharecroppers in Tennessee, she said that what she wishes for Tina's heaven is a happy childhood. You know? I mean, like, that's a really revelatory moment. Yeah. I was crying. I mean, everybody was crying. Sorry to out everybody for crying, but like me, Danielle, everybody who was on who was on the call that day was crying, and that is obviously emotionally really beautiful. It's lyrically beautiful the way that Danielle laid it out, but also for me that moment was personally resonant because for a lot of Black women who are boomers and up just speaking for as a millennial or whatever, but a lot of our moms, grandmothers, aunts, you know, older cousins, whatever, even if they didn't grow up exactly like Tina, when I, when you think of the sort of heaven that you would want for them, knowing their stories, right? When I think of those things, that's what I want. Like I didn't, I like Danielle verbalized something that I could feel was very true, but I had never been able to find the words for. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I want for a lot of the you know elder black women in my life and i think that's part of why that struck a chord mm. and yeah getting the guest to say something or stumble upon something that feels if it's not an emotionally revelatory moment then we want like a really what we call sometimes sparkly idea <laughs> um something that's really chewy that feels new or gets at something true explains something true in a plain way that spells out something that feels true, but the rest of us don't have the words to express it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is that the same as a vanguard point? Yeah, a vanguard point, I think. There's a, I have this thing, I, I, I don't, I never really applied it to my own work, but I have a friend who is a theater critic and I end up going with her to see a variety of things because she gets a lot of plus one tickets. And she reports a lot on black theater. And one of the things I struggle with sometimes when I'll go to see Broadway plays that are like about black people or about their or feature black people and the characters is I'm just like, I'll go there and it's just a bunch of shit that I already know mm-hmm. or stuff that's tired or things that I've already heard. Not all the time. There are plenty of things that I've seen that have been great, but I realize that what I'm always looking for with art is that I want something that is new or feels true. And I think that in hindsight, now that I'm thinking about how we're trying to get these vanguard points across... Yeah, we're looking for something, at least for me, I can speak for myself. I want to be able to give the listener a moment that feels really sparkly, chewy, maybe even sometimes a little scary or a little challenging Mm. or or quite challenging, but is getting it something true. Does the show feel like art to you? Mm, I can't say because I don't know. I've only ever done... I've only ever created in this way as a job. I'm not saying that art and commerce, right? Like can't ever be intertwined, but I don't know. I know there are people in audio. I I have many wonderful colleagues and friends in audio who do consider what they do art or what we do art. But I would, I think of the show as a creative practice Mm -hmm. is what I would say. What does that mean? Well, I think the, the practice part is like, there's a set time that it happens. It happens on a regular, at least for me, a set time that it happens. It happens on a regular basis. There are 
guidelines. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the biggest, I think when I say guidelines, I mean like the show's got to come out every Tuesday and Friday on podcast. <laughs> right. Right. And it's got to fill right. 48 minutes of radio time every every weekend. But yeah, there are parameters. There's a time and when and where it happens. There are expectations. I'm supposed to come out of this practice with something. Mm-hmm. And then the creative part is, I mean, a lot of the show is exploring my curiosity, but also it's like the producers and I, like a lot of the conversations that we have, we're at, we actually have an episode coming out next Friday that's about children's rights, hmm. which is really interesting. We talk to kids. We are talking to academics about like the ways in which like our nuclear family structure that we're very tied to in the West can be really harmful for both kids and parents. Um, and then we also talk to a child therapist who can sort of like break down ways that parents can sort of like make their children feel more seen and more heard and acknowledged. That's something that like one of our producers, Liam, um, Liam McBain, who's great. They're all wonderful. I hope to say everybody's name at some point if I don't. If I don't, <laughs> please forgive me. Um, Liam, he had been thinking a lot about, you know, children's rights and like how structurally in many ways children are really vulnerable in society. And then we had been talking about this like last fall. I happened to watch like the Matilda movie musical, the Matilda musical movie on Netflix, like on Christmas Day. Okay. And completely just like lost my shit crying. And I had like a pretty happy childhood, but uh, something about the way the conversations that we had been having sort of like weighed on my spirit, I guess, in that moment. And then I brought it up to him in one of our one-on-ones. And, you know, it's like so much of the show is definitely from my point of view, Mm -hmm. but also I feel like we're constantly having these concentric interwoven conversations, like as a, as a group that end up like coming out on the show. I feel like a lot of the things that end up on the show are not just my my interests or our interests, but I think sometimes I'm trying to work something out without giving too much of myself away and also while talking to highly qualified experts. (laughs) (laughs) I want to come back to that for a second, but I want to just push on the creative practice idea Mm -hmm. for one second longer because it's a really interesting one to me and the way that you're articulating it is not quite how I've thought about it before, although you're describing something that I've thought about a lot, mm-hmm. which is those moments that feel sparkly or chewy or true or challenging. Like, you know those moments when they happen, but how do you think about creating the conditions that allow them to happen? Like, what does it take hmm. for those moments to happen in your experience? I'm big on preparation. So if I interview you, I have watched your movie, I have read your book or books, I have read your work, I have listened to your show. Also, like, I prepare, but also, like, our producers are really prepared. I think we've gotten pretty good at having conversations that help us to continue to try to, like, break and break and break our idea about something until we kind of get that driving question that we're looking to answer. Mm -hmm. The best words that I can use to describe how I like to feel before I speak with somebody is I like to feel locked in. Ideally, what happens is I, and the the first thing is what I always try to get to. I prepare and I think, and then I spend some time not thinking and just like playing stupid games on my phone or like talking to my husband or whatever, (laughs) um, or like watching Netflix, reality TV shows, until I sort of feel like um, I understand, like I have come to some personal understanding about the topic 
the book or the person or whatever that I'm talking to or about. And then hopefully what happens is, is that when I go to interview this other person, I'm confident, I'm prepared, they can tell, I'm welcoming them into my living room, into my home. And usually within the first, sometimes immediately, um, but usually within the first like question or two, they get to a place where they can relax mm-hmm. and like lock into me. Like we can get to a place where we really connect. Sometimes it doesn't happen until like later in the conversation. Sometimes people are feeling me out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people are kind of caught up in their own worry about like, I think anybody, I mean, you're interviewing me right now. And, and when I'm on this side of the microphone, I feel like nervous because it's like you kind of, I don't know, I think that everybody has this thing where they want to be helpful and they want to feel like they're giving you the thing, not necessarily giving you, telling you what you want to hear, but like participating in the conversation in the way that you had hoped. Um, it can be a form of partnership, although if they lean into that idea too much, it can be hard to um, find those moments you're talking about. Yeah. I think that that's why it's like being prepared, locking in, but also like Part for me of getting the other person to lock in is like kind of getting them to buy into me and to feel like I know what I'm doing and to feel comfortable around me. Mm-hmm. Because then I think, I don't think of myself necessarily as the authority when I'm talking to somebody else, of course, but it's like I I need for them to feel like I've respected their time, I respected their work, but also that like okay, but you're, you're in my house now <laughs> to yeah, a certain totally. degree. Totally, like, totally. Yeah, which I think is different, a different posture maybe than being in the field to a certain degree. But yeah, I think that's what it is. It's like I need for the, I just need to sort of really gain their trust really quickly and make them feel like I've respected their time. And then I think people can feel like, oh, okay, well, you understand what I've done or you have at least a strong feeling. You've at least watched or read whatever I've done. And so now I feel like I can actually talk to you and trust that you're not going to misread me. Right. They need to know that you've done your homework. And also they need to know that you invited them over for a reason. Exactly. That I've invited them over for a reason. That I'm not just there to like, you know, chit chat. That stuff you're talking about, is that work that you can get better at? Um, Like locking in? I think I have gotten better at it. So I think you can get better at it. What does that look like? Well, I, I can't, I can tell you how I, I see or feel things differently now that I can, like a way in which I can tell that I've improved at that. I definitely, well, first of all, I've been in therapy for 11 years. So obviously I have people pleasing issues. <laughs> That's one of the things that I work on in there. Um, and so having a job where you're constantly having to ask people personal questions sometimes can be, it goes against how I want to conduct myself as like a person. I'm like, oh, I don't want to. Like, I used to feel this thing. I don't want to ask them that. They seem like such a nice person. Totally, totally. <laughs> I don't want them. <laughs> I don't want them to start crying or be <laughs> mad at me. Um, I think that that's like the human instinct, right? I think that's like you know, you don't want to make somebody feel bad. Yeah, you got to get a little comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think that definitely a way in which I have gotten better is I don't actually even see it that way anymore. I don't see it as if I'm like doing something mean or making them feel bad or making somebody else feel uncomfortable. I can pick up on cues when the guest is feeling unsure of themselves or if if they would like to almost lean on me in a certain way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when you're doing an interview sometimes and 
I, at least for me, when I first started, oh, I used to hate like awkward silences, you know? Yeah. And I, of course, had to be trained and learned over time that like when you have the awkward silence, it's not always so much awkward as like you're giving space for the other person to say something interesting. Um, this is when I don't talk for like 45 seconds. <laughs> exactly. But then the other thing though, is that I think like for me, at least the level beyond that has been not even waiting for them to say something interesting, but more so just being present um, and not, and because I don't have any expectations placed on myself or the guest, I think they can feel that. And as a result, they can kind of not put pressure on themselves to try to please me or to try to come up with an answer faster than they feel like they actually can. All of that makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like one of the things about what you're saying about goals is true. Although the goals are different when you're talking to someone you've invited into your house because you respect their work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there are some goals, but it's not like I got to get him to answer this question or like I didn't ask him the hard one. You know, it's like it's a different (laughs) thing when you're trying to figure out what I hear you trying to figure out on the show all the time, which is what drove someone to do the work that they have decided to do? What does the work mean to them now that they have put it out in the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, or even like what, like, like, like if someone has um, new or interesting theory about something, I want them to at least know that I like, I'm not having them in some ways we are having them on to explain to the listener, right? <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. Cause like the, that's kind of like some, some table study that you have to do, but I want people to know that like, I'm not just going to have you on to explain yourself. Right. I was interested in something that you said. And so I don't want to just rehash what you said. I want to get to a deeper place. I want to go beyond whatever you've given or whatever you've written or whatever you've put out. And I think that really connects with staying present because sometimes, at least in my experience, you have a driving question. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just uh, my aforementioned awkwardness, but sometimes <laughs> the driving question isn't quite isn't quite the right one isn't quite the right one yeah and my experience is if you are not present if you're too committed to that driving question yes yes you can't hear that it's not the right one 100 percent. and there's no way to get to the place that you're talking about if you can't hear that absolutely and that that at least in my experience that is something that with practice like with reps you can get better at. Reps is the only way too. I mean, that's one of the things I love about this job. Everything is practice. I love it. It's like, if a show is great and everyone loves it, you got to put out another one. <laughs> you just got to do it again. And, then totally. if the, if, and if the show didn't quite do what you if like what you'd hoped or set out to do in your mind and in your heart, you got to do another one. I just love it. You can never feel too good and you can never feel too bad. <laughs> Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Do you think that you'll be curious, like, forever? Yes. Yes. Oh, that was such a good and quick answer. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Well, I'm really fortunate in that I am surrounded by so many curious people. My parents are very curious. My husband, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, my sisters, uh, my aunts and uncles. Uh, specifically, I'm surrounded by a lot of curious older people. Hmm. Like the elders of my life are really curious, and they're always like interested in new things and what's going on in the world and staying up on technology and like seeing new movies and hearing new music. and. I think because I have so many people that raised me that are like that, I think it's kind of the only way to be, for me at least. And so that search for the Vanguard point, mm -hmm. that's not a finite resource. Like you can keep looking for that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things that we talk about on the show or the things that we'll talk about in meetings, like before we record something or as we're developing it, I talk with my parents about. My parents are 60. My mother is about to be 60. Eight. My father's 69. And there are so many things that we talk about on the show that I talk with them about <laughs> because they're just interested in new stuff. Like, so yeah, I mean, I think it's always going to be something that I'm interested in. I just love knowing what's going on. I'm extremely nosy. <laughs> I love how quickly you answer that question. <laughs> no static. No, none. None. I can't imagine not being curious. I feel like if you're, if you're not curious, then like, why do this job? Totally. I mean, you, you actually can't do your job. No. No. But I guess maybe the, the cynical thing underlying that question was a question about, like, once you have gotten so many reps, mm -hmm. once you've done so many interviews, you have made so many episodes of things. You're telling me. Sometimes people will talk about an episode, and I'm like, God damn. 
I forgot. Yeah, I did make that. Couldn't tell you. Uh huh. I do. I do remember that. Yeah, right. Good point. That's what I mean. It's like you've just made so many episodes of things. Part of what that question was was like, do you feel like you just have perpetual energy to make episodes, to ask questions, to try and find these vanguard points? Hmm. I think right now I do, at least on the schedule that we're doing it on, which is like twice weekly, basically. And I've been doing like weekly or daily um, or biweekly publishing for the past like nine years. But I also have had projects where I have been chewing on one thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And even when when I was making The Nod, which sometimes we would do like fun things in studio and play games and stuff like that. But sometimes we would do like longer reported pieces that would take months. One of the things I loved about that show in hindsight is like, well, I mean, first of all, it was like big money <laughs> podcasting days when like everything was like a startup and there was like cash everywhere, which at the time I didn't know anything any different. So I didn't think about it. Now I look back at it and it's, I have so many thoughts about it. I don't even like, I can't even get into it. But um, one really big upside of that is that like making a podcast that was just about black life in general, we could like find just things that we were curious about or interested in and like go investigate. Yeah. So like there was one episode about the origins of barbecue where we like went to New Orleans to this guy's house. Oh my gosh, I wish I could remember his name. But we went to go see this guy who's like a NASA engineer, but also like a a pit master. Uh-huh. And he basically done a bunch of research and found that the way that he learned to make barbecue like in a pit in the ground or whatever like how the way he learned to make barbecue, excuse me, he would make pits out of refrigerators, um, out of like brick pit house, anything. Like old, like literally, we went to his backyard, we saw a hollowed out old refrigerator. But he was able to trace that history back to enslaved African people, like in the Americas, like in the United States, who were barbecuing like over these big pits in the ground, like sort of where pit barbecue came from. This, you know, historical revelation completely changed how people think about the history of barbecue. I mean, very often, like, the title of pitmaster is given to, like, white guys in the Carolinas or in Alabama or Texas or something like that. And um, to kind of reclaim the, like, barbecue history as, like, a black culinary history is pretty amazing. But, like, you know, I mean, we went... We were like in New Orleans. We went to this guy's house and we like tried his custom barbecue sauce and like met his wife and saw like these like homemade pits that he made with his like engineering know-how. I mean, that is some platonic ideal of the work, right? Oh, Which is yeah. it's important, it's fascinating, it's a story you're desperate to tell. And also you get to go to New Orleans, eat a bunch of barbecue. Yeah, it was just like, you know, <laughs> the sort of thing that now and sort of like a everybody's remote um which of course, like there's lots of great accessibility things about that. But like now that everybody's remote, um, and also too, I, I don't work on a show where we do much like field reporting. I really miss that. And I really am so grateful that we have so many of those experiences, like going out also to LA and interviewing a woman who is still alive today, who grew up on a plantation, you know, who now lives in the, the hills of Hollywood, like in an in-law yeah. suite in her son's house. And being able to go drive all the way up to the Hollywood Hills, see the view that they had, and then go down, you know, to the the downstairs unit where she lived and sit on the floor holding a shotgun mic between this woman, Everly Hairston, and Eric, 
Eddings, who was my co-host for The Nod and for Colored Nerds, and just listen to her life story. Like the, the there was a pane of glass in the living room upstairs in their house that was the one thing that she saved of the literal slave cabin that she was raised in as like a reminder to the family basically of like, you know, this was, is not that far from them. It's so amazing. The, the people that we got to meet and the stories that we got to share over the years is so, so, so amazing. When you were working on that show, when you guys were doing those stories, you were telling those stories, but you were also talking about telling those stories. Like the work you were doing felt like text, not subtext to me. Hmm. And I wonder whether it felt at the time like there were lots of people trying to tell the stories that you were trying to tell, whether there were lots of people trying to do the work that you were trying to do or not. I think that there probably always were people who wanted to tell the types of stories that we were telling, but I don't know if those people got the same kind of like access through, that's, that, but- that's more, that I'm, that's more that I went, not, not that people didn't want to, but did they have the opportunity to? Yeah, did, I, I think, I don't think, I mean, when I think back to what The Nod was doing, I don't think there was another show that was just talking about like black life and black culture every week with changing formats. I mean, we would like one week- we would be like interviewing a bunch of people who worked on Blackish about how they do the hair on that show. And another week, we'd be talking about like a history of like grape flavoring and like how we got grape soda and why it tastes the way that it does. You know right. what and I mean? It's like, and then you'd be in New Orleans and then you'd be talking to a friend of yours about like what self-care actually means. It was like there were the show is throwing so many different pitches. Yeah. And there's no, I don't think that there wasn't anything. I don't think that was covering that breadth at that time. Again, not because nobody wanted to, of course, but I don't know if anybody else had that opportunity at that time, which is a shame. And I don't see another show that has done anything like that since, which is also a shame. There are there are plenty of there are great shows that like cover a specific aspect of Black life, but that kind of breadth reported every week. I. I wish that there were, I'm sad because like, of course I don't get to make it anymore, but I'm also sad because I'm like, there should be 10 of these. Right. But there aren't 10 and there weren't 10 then. And one question I had listening back to some of those episodes before we talked was like, how do you make choices about what you're going to do when you can kind of do anything and you want to maybe do everything? Hmm. Well, we had like guiding principles. Our like founding editor for The Nod was Jorge Just. We had amazing editors on The Nod. We had Jorge Just, Annie Rose Strasser, Emmanuel Berry, Sarah Saracen. We had like just the just the fucking best editors. I love them all so much. But Jorge was around like when I'll put you like this. Eric and I had originally pitched a version of what would become The Nod to Gimlet like November 2016. Jorge Just, um, sensed that that was the show that I really wanted to make at that time because all of this was happening. We were, we were pitching Gimlet on new show ideas because they had canceled Sampler and I still worked there and they wanted me to come up with something else. Maybe that was like more me. They'd, they'd canceled it because I like at least one of the guests was just, was just terrible. <laughs> no, 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 just couldn't no. get that guy to say anything interesting. Um, it tur- <laughs> as it turns out, a podcast about podcasts. I don't know if we had reached peak podcast at that moment. Um, so I think there was some foresight there in the <laughs> format, but I just, it's funny though. I'll say the numbers that we were getting for Sampler back in the day, there are pe- there are shows that would stab and kill mm-hmm, those numbers mm-hmm. This is a different time. 
It was a different time. In a completely different time, a much more saturated market. But um, November 2016, I was pitching Gimlet's like show ideas for something that would be more me or come from me or more suited to my personality. I was I was still you know, co-hosting for Colored Nerds with Eric. So I was kind of like, okay, well, this is the thing I've been breaking my back doing like every day before and after work and on the weekend. Could this be the thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Could we do this? And at first, um, Gillette was like, no, we don't really hear it. And it's so wild to think back that like November 2016, I feel like for so many people politically coming out of 2016, a big thought to come out of that time, the election result, was that there hadn't been enough journalism on what was going on with black voters, what black people were thinking about, voters of color. And so it was interesting, like in the days after what seemed like a surprising, for some people, a surprising election result that kind of hinged on understanding the motivations of American black people, at least politically or electorally, you know? Um, Yeah. And they were like, no, but Jorge just picked it up. He was like, Hey, I think this is what you actually want to do. Right. And I was like, yeah. He's like, so let's work on it in secret. Let's work on it in secret. Let's pilot it. Let's work on this along alongside whatever other idea they want you to be working on to pitch them formally. And we'll pitch it to them and, and we'll see what happens. And he got us to really define what he called like the world of the show. And so it's like, what do we do? What do we not do? What do, what are the things that we talk about? What are the things that we don't talk about? What types of stories do we have incredibly high standards for with regard to like how many times this story has been told over and over and over again? Or what are stories that other people have already told incredibly well? Like we knew, okay, well, like Eyes on the Prize is pretty fucking good. So we don't need to like <laughs> go back over their work. What are like civil rights stories or slave narratives that haven't been heard as much. And how do we pick those out? And that's how we ended up talking to Everly Hairston, the, you know, the woman who's still alive today and I believe her 70s who grew up mm-hmm. in a plantation in the, and didn't leave her family's plantation until the 1970s when she left home. Or talking about Lucille Times, who was in Montgomery and is actually, some people believe, the, the true mother of the bus boycott because months before Rosa Parks you know, refused to sit in the back of the bus, Lucille Times was like cut off in traffic by like the same white bus driver who eventually would tell Rosa Parks to sit down and they got into a physical altercation. (laughs) Um, Like that is kind of like, oh, this black woman who got in a fist fight in the 1950s with a racist bus driver. That's not a story that showed up in my history book. So that's going to be sort of the story that we were going for. But a big thing for us was that a lot of reporting done by white people about black people which there was a lot of reporting done by white people about black people or non-black people about black people. A lot of the culture reporting that we had seen or just just general everyday reporting we had seen was always focusing on white people's perspective or just like the non-black perspective. And it's like, you know, I hate that feeling of reading something about black people or about, about black women. I think women also, you know, I think any marginalized person hates reading like a long form piece or listening to like a long thing of audio about something that you feel like is supposed to get to a deeper aspect of your experience. And it's just the same shit you've heard over and over again, because it's explaining something to white people or explaining something to non-black people or, you know, straight people or whatever. So that was the thing for us is like black people always had to be the center of the story. We were never going to do something that would place black people outside the center of the story. Can I ask you about something else? This is like a little bit of a digression, but I saw you tweet it this week. <laughs> what, what did I say? Was it about the what? ultimatum queer love? Because I've been no. watching that nonstop. No, it was not. It was <laughs> okay. about Jorge. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, you said, some of my best moments as a leader are just me copying Jorge. Mm -hmm. What are the moments that you were thinking about when you said that? What are your best moments as a leader? Well, okay. So first of all, I mean, there are quite a few people that I like copy <laughs> in my day-to-day life with uh, like just like hosting and editing and stuff like that where I'm just sort of like, okay, you know, what would Sarah Saracen have done? What would Sada Abdurrahman have done? What would Emmanuel or Annie Rose have done? And um, when I, in that moment when I was thinking about Jorge, something that he did so well, actually going back to um, developing the nod, he has this specific talent for taking the tiniest kernel of a thing or the tiniest like kernel of interest that you have in a thing and talking you through it or just asking questions or poking at it until it starts to take shape. I think one of the hardest things to do is to start something from scratch, like to really build something from that tiny kernel, even less than a kernel. And I think that he's really good at doing that. I don't think that I have that. I pretend. <laughs> Does but, that feel like a form of leadership to you? Oh, absolutely. I think that like one of the things that I try to do is meet with every producer at least every other week for 30 minutes, one-on-one. And it's helpful because like we they get to know me, I get to know them, I get to we get to understand what the other person likes, what we're interested in, and when we're all remote, cuz half the team is in New York and half the team's in San Francisco or like the Bay Area. It's like when we're all remote, you have to have that kind of time because you don't have the idle time in the office or in between meetings anymore. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we'll like bring ideas to each other to try to work things out. And if a producer comes to me with something that they're interested in or something, they're like, I don't know about this. Or like, I kind of like this topic, but I don't know what to do. That's when I'll sort of like do my Jorge impression <laughs> and just like ask questions until we can get to something that like one of us can like get a fistful of something. I, I can't do the whole Jorge thing of like helping to like, like he's the, he's a, such a great person to have when you're like in the beginning of something and trying to like make it into a thing. But that's what I was thinking about. And I, I try to have that. He has like a, a level of, I think, faith, actually. <laughs> I don't know if he would describe it that way, but I see it as faith um, that something is going to come on the other side of chewing the fat. I like that idea. Yeah. I think that's also something that comes from reps. Yeah. And also definitely from like weekly, those weekly or daily reps. It's just sort of like, you know, there's a way the sun always rises. Something's always going to come from talking something through. Right. And it might not be the thing that you think it's going to be. And the thing mm-hmm. that you thought it was going to be might not work. But that's also some kind of experience. Exactly. Can we talk about some other experiences you've had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I want to play a classic Brittany Lou style interview game. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's a, there's only one round of it, though. Ready? Okay, good. I'm going to say a word, uh-huh. and you tell me what comes to mind. Ready? Okay. Quibby. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, that was just a weird way of asking you about Quibby. No, I know. But I'm like, now you think of it, I'm like, wow, one word. I don't know. You know, sleepy, because when I was making my Quibby show, I was tired. <laughs> I was so tired because we moved that production home so fast during COVID, during lockdown rather. Um, Would you make 150 something episodes of your Quibi show? 139, I believe. 139. Mm-hmm. On a platform mm-hmm. 
that no longer exists. Like a shooting star. Like a shooting star, yes. But yes, I was sleepy. I was so tired. But I mean, we had the best team. It, it It's unfortunate because like we had this, this the most amazing, amazing, amazing team. One of my producers on, it's been a minute, Alexis Williams. I met Alexis through Making the Quibi Show. She was a producer on that show. Um, and she has not given up on me. <laughs> She's still working with me. Um, Can you give me the kind of condensed version of your experience on Quibi? Because I feel like it became this kind of media footnote, slight media punchline. Like it was, yeah, like use case in business schools for like how not to do certain things. I'm sure, and in some places. And meanwhile, you were just making 139 episodes during that time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and there's so many people whose shows never got seen. Um, So it's funny. um, You feel like a lucky one. In some ways, actually. I do because a I the thing I made got seen by somebody, and I got paid also. <laughs> so like that feels relevant, good. Like very had, relevant. I had a job like that was cool, and also like I had a great team. But I got again reps like making a daily show. It, it's uh, with the nod. We didn't have any sort of specific. I think I think every episode had to be like fourteen minutes in order to put ads in it, right? And I never had like a time limit before working on a Quibi show. Quick Bites, that's where the Quibi came from. Mm-hmm. So every episode was like six to eight minutes. I think they were supposed to be three to five, but they gave us six to eight, which is luxurious when you're trying to fit something into three to five minutes. Yeah. I learned a lot about how to make decisions faster, about how to get to the point of something a lot faster, how to make something workable a lot faster. When you're making, a weekly show can already be kind of like you're doing a lot. You're moving and grooving. Yeah, but a daily show is like the speed is is unreal. Does it make a weekly show seem easy? It, I wouldn't say that it makes it feel easy, but like I feel a lot stronger. Is how I would put that. I feel much stronger at making a weekly show than I used to. I used to, I feel less rattled by it. If that makes sense. What was it like when Quibi ended? <laughs> a whimper. Um, <laughs> I found out the same way everybody else found out. Read it in the Wall Street Journal. I didn't get the sense that like it was something that even like our executives were aware of. Mm-hmm. I think they hit, I don't know. I, I really don't even, I, if you would ask me probably like two or three years ago, I'd probably have better memory of what probably what happened. <laughs> it's like now, now you forget episodes and ends of whole platforms. Yes. But um, I read it. I had a meeting that I was supposed to go to and our showrunner, Sean Johnson, who's amazing. Um, he was like, I've worked on shows where the platform shut down before. It takes a couple of weeks to get things all sewn up. We're probably going to be working for another week or two. So literally after I got out of that meeting, I think the meeting was like 5 to 5.30. Sometime later that evening, I got a phone call from our co-EPs, like the people who are in charge of the production company that was like doing physical production for the show. And they were like, oh, yeah, no production shut down immediately. And the thing that was really sad about it more so for me was like, of course I was worried about like myself. Yeah. But I was worried about the remaining producers and crew that we had and like, Mm -hmm. you know, what job they were going to do next. But I just, I really felt lucky that I got to work with so many amazing black people doing a really weird time for black people in this country, being able to talk about it through the show and being able to talk to people that were like, we had some really good conversations on the show and talked to some really amazing people on the show um, where those episodes live? <laughs> Who knows? So, so no regrets on the Quibi, the Quibi experiment. None. But I mean, we kind of thought that going in. Eric and I, one of the things that we talked about was just like, 
Creamy's this new platform, and if it doesn't do well, it's not going to be our fault. So, like, <laughs> you know, we always wanted to try, like, we always wanted to do something visual with the nod. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things, like, from, you know, going out in the field and reporting and meeting so many people and being in these incredible locations and seeing, you know, Black people doing all this cool stuff, it just made us want to, like, show that to people. And... um when we were producing the show, like in a studio and in the field, like before it got shut down because of COVID nineteen, those were just some of the best professional experiences I've had in my life. After Quibi shut down, <laughs> you uh, you were freelancing for a while. You mm-hmm. were editing podcasts. You were hosting podcasts that were like kind of short term project things. You and I worked together. On, uh, That's true. Technically, yes, we did. Technically. I think it was even yeah. more than technically. But also you were writing a little bit. You wrote a piece for Vulture. wrote a piece for Harper's Bazaar. I did. Oh, my God. About married at first sight. I did get married. Yeah. I did get married. I know I, I said in the piece, I was like, oh, I'm not planning my wedding. But I did eventually get married. So fact check. That period before you guys rebooted for Colored Nerds, like, mm-hmm. did you feel like writing was going to be a real path for you? Were you like dabbling with it? What role does like writing play in that period and in your sort of creative life? Writing is actually the thing that I enjoyed first and foremost, but I felt really shy about putting myself out there writing. And so podcasting felt to me, I know everybody's different, but to me, it felt easier. Hmm. I don't know. I think for me, I felt like um, fewer things could get lost in translation. Like if somebody could hear me like they could understand my intent better than what I felt my writing at that point could convey. I was so nervous about uncharitable interpretations. (laughs) Um, And also too, I mean, it wasn't like I, before, I mean, I work in media now, but I got into media from making an independent podcast. I was working in corporate America. So it's like, I was like, I really wanted to write what I now understand. I really wanted to do culture writing, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have any sort of in And so, yeah, it seemed like a really sort of far-fetched thing. And so it was kind of like, well, podcasting is like, let's try it out. It's easier to me at the time. How did it feel to finally do it? It was really satisfying. I had written one thing in 2016. I was asked to write something about Lemonade, like Beyonce's album, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, it took me a matter of hours to spit that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm actually still pretty proud of that. But that was like the first thing that I had written professionally. And then up until... Like 2021, it was like the only thing that I had written professionally. And so once people were aware, at least people on Twitter and other people like in journalism and stuff like that, once they were aware that I was like unemployed, <laughs> like free or freelancing, they reached out to me to write stuff to see if I wanted to like do a profile on somebody or if I had any ideas that I was interested in or like, you know, oh, I saw that thread that you wrote about Married at First Sight. Like, would you like to expand on that? So that was really cool that people reached out to me. It made me feel like, how do I put this? I've had my fair share of experiences of other people casting doubt on my abilities throughout my career, you know, or even like sometimes getting compliments from people that were like covering up some sort of dig about my abilities. Um, and what, it's not what do you like, mean? What are you thinking of? Oh, people would say like, oh, um, you know, not, I'm not going to name names. Um, 
today. I, I'm gonna, if I'm going to name names, like I'm going to be getting a fat ass book advance for that. I'm not naming names. Sorry on your podcast. <laughs> Sorry. But there would be, you know, I had colleagues who would say things like, sometimes you guys don't get this right, but you got it right this time. Or like, you work on these things that it's like, you just don't seem qualified enough to do it. And then you do it. Like things like that. Like So it felt nice to have people reach out and just be like, I would like you to write something about this. Yeah. Because it's like, I think that one of the things that frustrated me is a because we're making a show about black culture, a lot of conversations that we had, like with press or even other colleagues, um, sometimes it was just sort of like, oh, it's great that your show exists. Uh-huh. <laughs> and not always, I'm not saying this never happened because we had plenty of people that also like really appreciated the craft of the show. But I still felt like, you know, when it came time to find somebody to speak on a certain topic or like do panels or, you know, it's like, I would be kind of, um, I wouldn't say frustrated because I never really necessarily had faith that like there was this great establishment that was going to embrace me with open arms anyway. But I just got the sense that like not everybody was checking for me in that way, like from a craft perspective, Mm -hmm. even though I knew that I had it. So it was really nice because I felt like I was being accurately seen is actually how I would put it. During that time you wrote this piece in Vulture, Mm-hmm. And it was a sort of book review of Mariah Carey's memoir, mm-hmm. although it was much more than that. It was like, you know, uh, incredibly layered and nuanced piece of criticism. Thank you. And it was about passing and like brought in multiple other books. You got into like Mariah's life story, which is a totally wild story. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic piece of criticism and it made me wonder whether – there's any part of you that like wants to be doing that in the future in some way? Like does writing without having to talk to somebody else, living just in your own head and interpretations of things, does that appeal to you? Yes, it does. It really, really does. I was definitely in a mode when I was freelancing where I felt like talked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, but you'd be talking every day. Sense. Yes, as I said a lot during that time, I have said enough. Like, that is exactly how I felt. And I also had this, like, after talking so much, I felt like if I didn't take the opportunity to do things a little bit slower, to do a little bit more thinking. I mean, of course, I still had to host shows, got to pay bills. You know, it's the main thing people know me for. That's so a job. Like, I had, yeah, it's a job. And I was fortunate to have those jobs. I work with some great people. But I enjoy being in like big thinking, deep thinking Mm. phase. And sometimes even with IBAM, we get there um, because we'll have like deep topics that we'll spend sometimes months working on one episode, but that's not every episode. And as much as I enjoy like having really deep conversations with people and, and getting to a place where we kind of like lock in with each other. And I love that challenge and I love getting in those reps. I also had, at least at that time, had this feeling maybe as a result of making 139 episodes of a daily video show on streaming on some now dead app during lockdown. Maybe that also did to my brain. I just felt like I was seen too much. Not that everybody had Quibi because God knows that wasn't the truth. <laughs> that, that turned out to um, not be the case. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like if, so, if people were looking at me or listening to me, like, I don't know if I could be fully as observant as I wanted to be. Do you think that that's a place that you'll get back to at some point? Um, I would like to someday. There's a lot of things that I would like to do. The biggest things I think are 
cultural criticism, like doing writing like that. Yeah. Um, and it made me hope that you would do more writing like that. Reading that. Thank piece. you. I hope so. There are a lot of people who are like you should write a book, and I'm like, girl. I wish. <laughs> there are people that there's people at NPR that are like will write whole ass amazing books, and I'm like, girl, I don't know how you are doing this because I just I don't I can't right now. But yeah, I would like to. I would really, really, really like to do cultural criticism and, and write essays like that. And also, I would love to do documentary filmmaking. Um, yeah, there's like fiction stuff that I'm interested in, but it's like the nonfiction stuff. At least for me, I'm realizing like. The habit of nonfiction storytelling, you know, it's like the story starts to braid itself in your brain. That's like how it worked with the Mariah Carey thing. It's like, oh, like this thing that felt really obvious to me that kind of like tapped me on the shoulder, that pace, the slower pace of like writing criticism or hopefully one day doing documentary. I would like to explore some of those ideas that have tapped me over the shoulder that haven't always fit into the thing I was working on at that time. So hopefully, hopefully. So often, Brittany, we end the show on this exact moment, which is like, what's someone going to do next? Mm -hmm. But I, if you don't mind, I want to go back one more time uh -huh. because I listened to the first episode <laughs> of FCN. Oh, no. Fall mm -hmm. of 2014. Did I, what did I say? I'm scared. What did I say? You said a lot of things. It's true. We didn't know too much about cutting audio back then. <laughs> yeah. It was not incredibly tightly edited. I will say that. Sound quality <laughs> left a little bit to be desired. Definitely. But also you sound like yourself. Thank you. It made me think and wonder what that person would be thinking of where you are almost 10 years later. You know something? She wouldn't be surprised. When I started making for Colored Nerds, I was like working at an office job where I was technically a marketing manager, but I was really more of like a glorified office manager, which I don't even have any talent. Like being an office manager is, is this very specific talent that you have to have that I do not have. <laughs> I just wasn't that interested in what we were doing or whatever. And I, I think to a lot of people in my life at that time, it seemed like things just were not making sense. They weren't lining up. Like, what is she doing? Where is she going? What's happening? I think in hindsight, I, not even in hindsight, if I go back and I read like my journals from that time, because I am a journaler. Um, a lot of my journaling from around late 2014 was me feeling like I had like this gut feeling that I was being prepared to receive something. Literally, that language shows up hmm. a lot. And I didn't know what it was, but I felt like whatever it is, I should get ready for it. And at that time, that meant like, actually, like if I was interested in going to see a museum exhibit, to go see it, if I wanted to go to a concert, to go like just really, I don't know. I became a lot more invested in my own interests. I think maybe is how I took that or how I interpreted that gut feeling. Hmm. It's kind of eerie how appropriate that was. Yeah. So I think that like me in 2014 would not be surprised. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally like I met my husband like, the weekend that I was piloting Sampler at Gimlet, hmm. we went on a date on Friday. And on that Saturday morning, I was in the very first Gimlet office working with Chris Neary. And that was pretty shortly after you guys launched for Color Dirt. It's like the independent version, right? I mean, it's like six months or something. 
maybe like 10 months or something like that. I met my husband in July 2015. Yeah. So it's maybe 10 months. That's a lot of change real quick. Yeah, I know. But I think that I had a gut feeling that like things were going to change. Maybe not so much that in the hindsight, I would say maybe the gut feeling wasn't so much that things were going to change like, but like I was ready for them to change. Hmm. So yeah, I think that I always, I knew that I had something that I wanted to share. I didn't know how it was going to get out. I didn't know if other people were going to care, but I think I really hoped that they would. So I think she would be pleased and excited, but maybe not fully surprised. What a great answer. Do you think it would have always been your answer? Is there something about this moment that makes you answer that way? Mm. Well, right now I'm like nine months into taking over a show that had like a beloved host that that originated the show um, and had a beloved host for like five years that the audience really loved. Fortunately, they've embraced me, which <laughs> I'm very grateful for. Um, but in trying to reimagine an existing show to suit me, and to suit the team that I have now, like, you know, a lot of the producers I mentioned earlier, also um, our fantastic editor, Jessica Placek and producer Corey Antonio Rose, who's just phenomenal and just so, so smart. Now that we've sort of figured out the nuts and bolts of how we make the show as a group and what we're trying to get to and what's interesting to us and what's interesting to me, one of the things that I've been trying to figure out is just trying to clarify what makes me me and who I am and how I want to come across in this moment. It's been joyful work, let's say, but it definitely has been necessary work <laughs> to do the job. And it's been really fun to figure that out with the group that we have. And it's been fun to like, just kind of keep trying things and, and like plugging away at it. I mean, you know, there are worse ways, I think, <laughs> to have to think about how you want to show up in the world. I, I feel really privileged that I get to do it this way. Well, it's been really fun to uh, talk with you a little bit about what that looks like. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Jackie Sajiko edited this episode. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Brittany Luce. She is the host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Go listen. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.